This podcast discusses cannabis and is intended for audiences 21 and over. Okay, this is the actual bud, the flower, OG Kush. I'm trying to see what the... It's 18.4% THC, and this is an eighth. Fun fact. Among states where adult use has become legal in recent years... What's the fastest growing group of cannabis users? Uh, these are the pipes that I use to ingest the flowers. And uh, one is clean, one is dirty. The before and after. I'll give you a hint. It's not teenagers. Sherry Horn. I'm on city council. Here in Laguna Woods. Yes, here in Laguna Woods. I'm 67. Welcome back to How to Do the Pot. I'm April Pride. I do the pot. With this podcast and my new venture, The High Guide, we're looking at how women are using cannabis and who might benefit from this plant. How old will your parents or your grandparents be in 10 years? I'll give you a second. Do the math. In 10 years, 50% of the U.S. population will be 65 and older. There's going to be a huge jump in the amount of people in that age demographic over the next decade. Currently, this demographic is prescribed more than a third of all prescription drugs in America, and the drugs are often used to treat pain. Today, we meet a senior, an activist, who is spreading the word about cannabis to a generation that could see serious benefits. To really get into that retirement sensibility, you know, the time when it's perfect to do the pot, I visited a place where seniors are thriving, a small city in Orange County, California called Laguna Woods, where I met Sherry Horn, the former mayor of Laguna Woods and a longtime cannabis advocate. So can you give us a little history on Laguna Woods? Laguna Woods is now 20 years old and Laguna Woods is all seniors. A lot of the officials on the state and county level, when they want their proposals taken up and supported and to seek support, they come here to Laguna Woods. I asked Sherry to tell me when she started doing the pot. Oh, gosh, I was a week away from my sweet 16th birthday was the first time that I tried it. Uh, and I smoked it a lot when I, not a lot, but yeah, continuously through the years when I was younger and grew up with it. And and then you, I moved away from it, and but I've always liked it. And, you know, you hear this all the time. The stuff that we have access to today is so much stronger than it used to be. Do you have any insight into that? What I think is really important is that now we test it. So we're sure that there's no pesticide. I mean, we were smoking malathion years ago because they people just didn't think about putting pesticides on what people ingested. So that's changed a lot. And uh, you can feel better about what you are using. But um, yeah, I guess it is a little stronger. Although looking back, since that was all we had, a little ounce of Acapulco gold was pretty good. <laughs> I like the creative uh, and the giggly mm -hmm. stuff. As a child of the 60s, Sherry smoked and she probably called it grass for fun. As she grew older and began representing a senior community as mayor, she became interested in its medical properties, particularly for older people who are prescribed many prescription drugs. The issue took on a sudden urgency for Sherry when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. 
Her mom might have opted for assisted suicide, but California had not yet passed its death with dignity law. For Sherry, it was hard to watch her mom suffer. My parents had lived here before me, and my mother got lung cancer. And she would never try cannabis because it was illegal on the federal level. And at the time, it was still illegal in the state level. So, What year is this? Uh, this is 2005. She ended up starving herself to death here because we didn't have the death with dignity and she was afraid to try the cannabis and she wanted to, she didn't like the morphine and just wanted to end it. She'd had a very healthy, wonderful life and she didn't want to draw it out. So um, I became an advocate and I wanted our city hall, I used to advocate at our city hall to have them legalize cannabis and uh, eventually they did. And when I was mayor in 2017, we were very high on the morbidity level. Overdoses, intentional or not, with alcohol and opioids. And uh, cannabis was helping a lot of people. The grandparent generation is increasingly suffering from opioid use disorder. For years, cannabis supporters have petitioned medical experts to study the relationship between cannabis use and issues that are so common for seniors. Recently, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine issued a report that said there is conclusive or substantial evidence that cannabis or cannabinoids are effective to treat chronic pain in seniors. By then, it had been legalized in the state. People were experimenting with the tinctures and the topicals, and they were getting a lot of help. So I became much more of an advocate, much more out there to talk about my own experiences with it so that people wouldn't be afraid to try it, because there was very much the attitude that just unsavory people and those people used mm-hmm. cannabis. And I really had to change that. You said you had to become vocal about consuming cannabis, which is something you had done your entire life since you were just before 16. When you did come out, what did you face? Was that uncomfortable for you? Uh, we were growing in the gardens here, the community gardens. And in the boardroom, they wanted to get cannabis out of the gardens. And so I went there to advocate to keep it in the gardens. And so uh, one was going on and on about these unsavory kind of people that it's drawing to the community and there's going to be thefts. And I got up and I said, I use cannabis. So I'm one of those unsavory people that you're talking about. So that was the first time there was a hush in the boardroom. But since then, I come out and say it over and over and over. If I can help one person, if I can get one person off their opioids and onto something better and help people, that's worth it to me. And did you start the Cannabis Club? No, it was going on uh, much earlier than I got started, but I became a member and I was a big supporter of it. But uh, it was a constant a uh, huge group of people. I mean, we would get two, 300 people to every meeting, every monthly meeting. Uh, and it changed a lot. As people learned about it, then they went and either tried it and got some of their own or everyone shared all their tips. And because it was always very much, and it still is, you don't know your own personal dose. When you start taking a tincture, how do you know how many drops to take? Some people need micro doses, and so they only take a, a, a drop. 
And so you had to start low and slow with one drop for a week and then raise it to two or three until it took away your pain. And so people would talk about it. Everyone that had that condition would talk about it. And so there was a great support group. And so a lot of those, but we even had a facilitators group so that if somebody was trying it for the first time and they were scared, a group of us would go over there and be there with them, not getting high or using any of our own medicine, but just being there with them so that they, if they started to feel cold, that's a natural thing. Sometimes your capillaries constrict and you might feel cold. You might feel dizzy. You might, it might lower your blood pressure. So all those things might happen. And you like to be there to tell people that's normal. Just sit down or relax or go ahead and eat something if you want, you know, whatever it is. And so I thought that was a wonderful thing to do. Older Americans who we might assume have the most stigma around cannabis use also stand to benefit the most. When you're encouraging someone to just try cannabis, is there an example of a person that took you up on that and with great benefit? There is. She had terrible pain in her tooth, and there was nothing that would touch that pain. And she didn't know what to do. And I, I got her to come to the dispensary to talk to the pharmacist she got the tincture and a couple of other things, gummy bears and with CBD and, T- and THC, it took it away immediately. She was someone that had never tried it, had never smoked it and grown up in the 60s with it. And she was a little reluctant to try it, but she was in a lot of pain. And, she, and it was just that one time. She doesn't have to continue using it when she gets that pain. She it's uses it and it goes away. Right. And she's like, it's a miracle. The miracle is born in part from a new way of doing things. When we reprogram our beliefs about pills, that they're the most effective way to deliver medicine, we open ourselves up to new treatments and relief. That really can feel miraculous. That's exactly what we're going to look at, pharmaceutical drugs, what they do and how they interact with cannabis. I wanted to know how doctors who do know about cannabis and cannabinoid medicine, how they think about prescribing cannabis alongside pharmaceutical drugs. I'm Dr. Jessica Knox, I guess more commonly known as Dr. Jessica, because I am one of four doctors in my family who are all Dr. Knoxes. (laughs) So I'm Dr. Jessica or Dr. Jess. If you listen to our episodes on pain and endometriosis, and you should if you have not, you've heard from Dr. Jess before. We take care of patients who, who simply want to use cannabis or get a cannabis recommendation um, in, in Oregon or Washington or California so they can come to us to get the paperwork done for them to be able to access medical cannabis. But we also take care of people who are trying to manage diseases as complicated as cancer or seizures or neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's um, or dementia, right? Like Alzheimer's. What are the danger of drug interactions with cannabis? The primary drug interactions that we are concerned with as it relates to cannabis are due to CBD. So CBD, um, along with many, many, many of uh, the pharmaceutical drugs that are out there are metabolized through the cytochrome P450 system in the liver. And what we know that CBD can do is it can sort of bind up that enzyme that's, that is responsible for breaking down other medicines. And what that means is if CBD 
is in the system and blocking up this enzyme, other medicines in the system can start to sort of build up. Um, and theoretically, right, depending on the medicine can cause toxicity because the, the drug levels are building up and up and up. Um, you know, clinically, we haven't seen a lot of this. So, right, so when we're taking care of patients in the clinic, we haven't seen a lot of drug interaction issues. Um, I think the best evidence uh, we've seen of this is with certain um, anti-epileptic drugs, so seizure drugs. We've seen that seizure drugs can back up. But what that means is that if you use CBD along with your seizure medications, a lot of times we can reduce the dose of the seizure medications. So it's kind of like a, you know, pro con there. It's just a manner, a manner of keeping track of drug levels and, and managing them. But, you know, the concern is as we see all of these CBD products hitting the market and you can, you can have CBD in your coffee and you can add a CBD supplement, you can put CBD in your yogurt. We don't know what kinds of doses people are going to accumulate over the course of their day to day if they're like CBD fanatics. Um, and, and nobody is really managing, right? People who can go and buy CBD from their coffee shop or their drugstore. Nobody's managing the CBD they're taking with other drugs they might be taking. And so, um, you know, we might, we might start to see some, some more interactions just because people are using CBD in a not informed way. So. Dr. Jess hasn't been too worried by negative interactions between cannabis and pharmaceutical drugs, but she does see them as two very different approaches to medicine. Um, pharmaceutical drugs are largely single isolate compounds, right, where a lot of them actually are derived from nature. That's why if we go to nature, a lot of the plants are medicinal, and that's why pharma has sort of... Um, isolated certain compounds that they've found to be medicinal and turned them into pharmaceuticals that are patentable um, so that they can sell them for more money. Um, but because these compounds have been isolated from their natural source, they're often toxic, frankly. Um, so for instance, if we talk about cannabis, one of, one of the things that is so beautiful about cannabis um, is that as a full spectrum medication, it it is very safe and very effective. And when I say full spectrum, that means it's it's the natural plant. It's the whole plant with all of its constituents as they were created in nature. So an analogy might be, um, you know, eating an orange versus taking a vitamin C supplement, right? You're going to get vitamin C from the orange, but you're also going to get some other terpenes and flavonoids and fiber and all of these great things and that vitamin C. But if you have just a vitamin C supplement, you're, you're only getting vitamin C and you're taking away all the benefits of all those other constituents. So if we back that back to cannabis, cannabis as a full spectrum, whole plant medicine, it has all of these different constituents in it that work together to one, have better effects than if you were to take any of these constituents alone. That's what we call the entourage effect. But also, too, it makes it safer because these, while these com components are working together to create more effect, they're also working together to sort of counterbalance one another and, and take away some of the negative effect. In short, part of why cannabis can be so effective is that we're more likely to get the full range of the plant's benefits, especially in using tinctures or smoking it, the full orange, if you will. So then if we take that back to pharmaceuticals, where, you know, our, our big pharma has isolated compounds out of natural plants, we're left with these isolate molecules that might be effective in doing what they're supposed to get done. Um, but they're also 
really toxic and have laundry lists of side effects because they don't have the fellow constituents from their natural source balancing them out. Another thing about cannabis that's really neat <laughs> is that it's gentler and it it tries to mimic our own endocannabinoid system that works really quickly. So our own endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoids will go and do what they need to do on the receptors and then they leave. They don't hang around. They don't just linger. They're very specific and quick acting. Pharmaceuticals, they get in there, they hang out forever. They're very general. They're not targeting anything for the most part. So they're just creating havoc <laughs> until our system like works them out. You heard Dr. Jess mention the endocannabinoid system or the ECS. It was discovered in the 1990s. I'm blown away by this fact because it's been in the human body since there were humans. It's the body's way of rebalancing from stress and other harsh inputs. We talk about it more in our first episode on pain. Cannabis mimics the body's natural neurotransmitters. It's one of the reasons it can function as a medicine. Okay, with that refresher in mind, let's listen to what Dr. Jess just said one more time. Another thing about cannabis that's really neat <laughs> is that it's gentler and it it tries to mimic our own endocannabinoid system that works really quickly. So our own endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoids will go and do what they need to do on the receptors and then they leave. They don't hang around. They don't just linger. They're very specific and quick acting. Pharmaceuticals, they get in there they hang out forever. They're very general. They're not targeting anything for the most part. So they're just creating havoc <laughs> until our system like works them out. Isolated compounds in pharmaceutical drugs, Dr. Jess is saying, may cause more side effects because of how they work and how long they stay in the body. While cannabis and the system that it works with in the body, the ECS, flushes itself out more quickly. I was thinking about Dr. Jess's analogy about eating a whole orange versus a vitamin C supplement. As more and more people are learning about cannabis, we're all focusing on more specific molecules within the plant like THC and CBD, which is great, by the way, of course. It gives new users, those who are green, <laughs> more control over what kind of effect they may be looking for. But still, it reminded me of what Dr. Jess was saying about focusing on isolating down to chemical structures. I asked her about whether she was worried that cannabis medicine was becoming more like a prescription drug. Often say, will the plant be Frankensteined? The short answer, yep. My biggest fear, you can probably guess, is big pharma coming in and taking over cannabis. So I obviously believe in cannabis and I, you know, think it should be legal for everybody to use in an informed and responsible way um, with appropriate regulations. But I also know that once cannabis is federally legal, that opens up the field for for big pharma to come in and and do what it usually does, right? And and big pharma is already working on this, right? Where they're, um, you know, they're looking at how can we isolate the cannabinoids, right? Because we know THC and CBD are, are really powerful medicinally, and a lot of the other phytocannabinoids are as well. But they're not thinking about, you know, how do we how do we create botanical synergy with our medicines? They're they're thinking about how do we isolate these? How can we patent them? How can we make money off of, you know, the the derivatives of this plant, because that's, that's what they do. That's, that's just their business model um, for, for better or for worse. And the concern is as if they 
do that, um, we'll, we'll lose access to the whole plant in a legal way. Insurance might cover pharmaceutical-derived cannabis, but not whole-spectrum cannabis, um, which, you know, it's like, okay, great. Patients might have access to cannabinoids because insurance is covering it, but they're getting an inferior medicine. So, like, how do we feel about that? And, you know, also there's a giant industry of folks who have been working on cannabis as medicine for decades. And they, they've created, um, a lot of them have created businesses that serve their community and serve their, their fellow man for, for good. And it's like, if big industry comes in to take over cannabis, what happens to all those folks who, um, who've been working on this, uh, as a, as a, you know, project of passion and love and, um, community for so long. So I think there are lots of different reasons why I'm concerned about the sort of big pharma threat to cannabis. When I launched into cannabis about four years ago, I designed products to store, smoke, and share cannabis. And I used to joke, but then it really became not a joke, that all of these large bags and storage containers would be replaced by pill cases, that the plant would be replaced by pills. But the more I learned and the more I talked to people who knew a lot more about this than I did, I realized how important it was for people, humans, to be consuming whole plant medicine, full spectrum plant medicine, rather than isolating cannabinoids and, and dialing in your dosage that way. So if we know that 50% of women who consume cannabis reduce or cease taking their pharmaceuticals altogether, then what we are trying to accomplish with this episode, one of the things we're trying to accomplish is to make sure that medical experts, that doctors, nurse practitioners, registered nurses understand how cannabis interacts with other drugs, or if someone's condition is the right type of condition to substitute cannabis for a pharmaceutical. And frankly, a lot of medical experts, let's just say most of them, have no idea how cannabis works with the body, much less your current pharmaceuticals. So we would like to see more research around this. And of course, the other reason is we have an aging population that is going to outnumber the rest of us in no time at all. And they are popping pills for pain because that's what their doctors know to prescribe them. It should come as no surprise that during a five-year period, 2010 to 2015, non-opioid-related inpatient hospitalizations for U.S. seniors decreased by 17%, yet at the same time, opioid-related inpatient hospitalizations for seniors increased by 34%. So they're not going to the hospital as much weight unless they've been prescribed opioids and 20% of all seniors are being prescribed at least one opioid. So what's the one solution that all clinicians can agree on? Reducing the dosage of opioid medication. And cannabis has been shown to reduce the dosage of opioids by up to 50%. So again, we want medical practitioners to better understand how cannabis can work to complement or supplement pharmaceutical pain medication. The impact is just so dramatic for seniors. The people who might have been the most skeptical 
parents and grandparents are showing the rest of us the scale of impact cannabis can have. And once you have your grandmother saying yes to cannabis, it's not, it's just a matter of time before the rest of the family is wondering, how can this plant help me? Our tips for how to do the pot today, five reasons seniors are using cannabis. Number one, joint pain, (laughs) no pun intended, especially in the joints of hands and knees. Arthritis is a big one that people use it for, especially the topical ointments and bursitis. They use a lot of the tinctures for that because it does make me less, uh, less in pain. The bursitis doesn't hurt as much. My joints don't hurt as much. Number two, relaxation. The doctor used to tell my 93-year-old father to have a drink at night to relax, that it's good for you. I like cannabis better because there's no calories in it. And the alcohol is bad for your liver, whereas the cannabis isn't. Number three, sciatica. And it's not just seniors who suffer from this. Sciatica is another one that it really helps. Back surgery, when you when your vertebrae, I mean, there's intractable pain that people have had for years, and they get help. And there's nothing better than seeing that smile. Number four, topicals for pain relief. What really makes the difference in people's minds here is their friends and neighbors that have tried it and found relief. When you can put a cream on, and it helps right away take that pain away, that is big. That is big here, and it works right away with topical pain. With tendonitis, my husband had tendonitis on his foot, and nothing else would work. And you put it on there, it, it is just amazing, just amazing. It just wipes that pain right away. I've had surgery on both my feet, and I have plates and pins and screws in there, and I put a little bit of that cream on there, and it takes away any pain. Number five, once seniors get comfortable with topicals, Typically, they'll move on to a sublingual tincture. We're going to talk about one of my favorite lines, Rosebud CBD. So notice that I said Rosebud CBD. This is a hemp-derived CBD. If you need to know a little bit of background of what we're talking about, you should check out our first episode on CBD and pain, which explains a little bit more the difference between CBD derived from the cannabis plant and the hemp plant. So this is derived from the hemp plant, which means Rosebud can ship anywhere in the U.S. Tinctures are sort of like Fisher-Price, my first experience with cannabis. I love it. They're so easy. You just Put the liquid from the vial under your tongue, hold it there for 30 to 60 seconds. And yes, it does smell or taste a little bit planty because the ingredients that Rosebud uses are so pure, right? It's the plant and it's organic MCT oil, which is coconut oil. Hold it for 30 to 60 seconds and allow it to be absorbed by the cells in your mouth versus swallowing it which will delay the onset. You can expect to feel something probably within 15 minutes. Some people say 30 minutes, but it's not intoxicating. So you won't, when I say you feel something, you may just experience, uh, it's almost like it's a sense of well-being and relaxation, not just from your mind's perspective, but your body seems to just be more chill as well. And if you leave it on your vanity and someone walks in, There's no way they're going to really be able to tell a difference between your Rosebud CBD tincture and your fancy department store 
cosmetics. The other great thing about keeping a tincture on hand, we have a weed hack as part of this high five. Keeping CBD around is great if you happen to consume too much THC. CBD cuts through the THC, minimizes your high, and allows you to maintain control once again. So I just keep CBD on hand because, you know, it doesn't always hit you the same. Every good hostess has a little CBD on hand for this reason. And thanks to Rosebud for offering 20% off when you enter the promo code DOTHEPOT. D-O-T-H-E-P-O-T on their website, rosebudcbd.com. Thanks everyone for listening today. If you like this episode, please share it with someone and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show. You can find more info and past episodes at dothepot.com. Thanks to my co-founder, Ellen Scanlon, Ali Mussolino, our marketing manager, Producer Gina Delvac and the team at Western Sound, including Stephen Hoffman, Ben Adair, and Haley Fox. I'm April Pride, and we'll be back soon with more of How to Do the Pot.